Part One of Mercenary by Mac Reynolds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Mercenary by Mac Reynolds. Narrated by Mark Nelson. Part One. Joseph Mauser spotted the recruiting lineup from two or three blocks down the street shortly after driving into Kingston. The local offices of vacuum-tube transport, undoubtedly. Baron Hare would be doing his recruiting for the fracas with Continental hovercraft there, if for no other reason than to save on rents. The Baron was watching pennies on this one, and that was bad. In fact, it was so bad that even as Joe Mauser let his sports hovercar sink to a parking level and vaulted over its side, he was still questioning his decision to sign up with the vacuum-tube outfit rather than with their opponents. Joe was an old pro, and old pros do not get to be old pros in the category military without developing an instinct to stay away from losing sides. Fine enough for low-lowers and mid-lowers to sign up with this outfit as opposed to that motivated by no other reasoning than the snappiness of the uniform and the stock shares offered. But an old pro considered carefully such matters as budget. Baron Hare was watching every expense, was, it was rumored, figuring on commanding himself, and calling upon relatives and friends for his staff. Continental Hovercraft, on the other hand, was heavy with variable capital, and was in a position to hire Stonewall Cogswell himself for their tactician. However, the die was cast. You didn't run up a cast level, not to speak of two at once, by playing it careful. Joe had planned this out. For once, old pro or not, he was taking risks. Recruiting lineups were not for such as he, not for many a year, many a fracas. He strode rapidly along this one, heading for the offices ahead, noting only in passing the quality of the men who were taking service with vacuum-tube transport. These were the soldiers he'd be commanding in the immediate future, and the prospects looked grim. There were few veterans among them. Their stance, their demeanor, their—well, you could tell a veteran even though he be rank private you could tell a veteran of even one fracas. It showed. He knew the situation. The word had gone out. Baron Malcolm Hare was due for a defeat. You weren't going to pick up any lush bonuses signing up with him, and you definitely weren't going to jump a cast. In short, no matter what Hare's past record, choose what was going to be the winning side, Continental Hovercraft. Continental Hovercraft and old Stonewall Cogswell, who had lost so few fracases that many a telly-buff couldn't remember a single one. Individuals among these men showed promise, Joe Mauser estimated even as he walked, but promise means little if you don't live long enough to cash in on it. Take that small man up ahead. He'd obviously got himself into a hassle maintaining his place in line against two or three heftier would-be soldiers. The little fellow wasn't backing down a step in spite of the attempts of the other lowers to usurp his place. Joe Mauser liked to see such spirit. You could use it when you were in the dill. 
As he drew abreast of the altercation, he snapped from the side of his mouth, "'Easy, lads. You'll get all the scrapping you want with hovercraft. Wait until then.' He'd expected his tone of authority to be enough, even though he was in mufti. He wasn't particularly interested in the situation beyond giving the little man a hand. A veteran would have recognized him as an old-timer, and probably officer, and heeded, automatically. These, evidently, weren't veterans. "'Says who?' one of the lowers growled back at him. "'You one of Baron Hare's kids or something?' Joe Mauser came to a halt and faced the other. He was irritated, largely with himself. He didn't want to be bothered. Nevertheless, there was no alternative now. The line of men, all lower so far as Joe could see, had fallen silent in an expectant hush. They were bored with their long wait. Now something would break the monotony. By tomorrow Joe Mauser would be in command of some of these men, in as little as a week he would go into full-fledged fracas with them. He couldn't afford to lose face, not even at this point when all, including himself, were still civilian-garbed. When matters pickled in a fracas, you wanted men with complete confidence in you. The man who had grumbled the surly response was a near-physical twin of Joe Mauser, which put him in his early thirties, gave him five-foot-eleven of altitude and about one hundred and eighty pounds. His clothes casted him low-lower, nothing to lose. As with many who had nothing to lose, he was willing to risk all for principle. His face now registered that ideal. Joe Mauser had no authority over him nor his friends. Joe's eyes flicked to the other two who had been pestering the little fellow. They weren't quite so aggressive, and as yet had come to no conclusion about their stand. Probably the three had been unacquainted before their bullying alliance to deprive the smaller man of his place. However, a moment of hesitation, and Joe would have a trio on his hands. He went through no further verbal preliminaries. Joe Mauser stepped closer. His right hand lanced forward, not doubled in a fist, but fingers close together and pointed, spear-like. He sank it into the other's abdomen, immediately below the rib-cage, the solar plexus. He had misestimated the other, too. Even as his opponent crumpled, they were upon him, coming in from each side. And at least one of them, he could see now, had been in hand-to-hand -hand combat before. In short, another pro, like Joe himself. He took one blow, rolling with it, and his feet automatically went into the shuffle of the trained fighter. He retreated slightly to erect defenses, plan attack. They pressed him strongly, sensing victory in his retreat. The one mattered little to him. Joe Mauser could have polished off the oaf in a matter of seconds, had he allotted seconds to devote. But the second, the experienced one, was the problem. He and Joe were well matched, and with the oaf as an ally, really, he had all the best of it. Support came from a forgotten source, the little chap who had been the reason for the whole hassle. He waded in now as big as the next man, so far as spirit was concerned, but a sorry fate gave him to attack the wrong man, the veteran rather than the tyro. He took a crashing blow to the side of his head, which sent him sailing back into the recruiting line, 
now composed of excited, shouting verbal participants of the fray. However, the extinction of Joe Mauser's small ally had taken a moment or two, and time was what Joe needed most. For a double second he had the oaf alone on his hands, and that was sufficient. He caught a flailing arm, turned his back, and automatically went into the movements which result in that spectacular hold of the wrestler, the flying mare. Just in time he recalled that his opponent was a future comrade-in-arms, and twisted the arm so that it bent at the elbow, rather than breaking. He hurled the other over his shoulder and as far as possible, to take the scrap out of him and twirled quickly to meet the further attack of his sole remaining foe. That phase of the combat failed to materialize. A voice of combat bit out, "'Hold it, you lads!' The original situation which had participated the fight was being duplicated, but while the three lowers had failed to respond to Joe Mauser's tone of authority, there was no similar failure now. The owner of the voice, beautifully done up in the uniform of vacuum-tube transport, complete to kilts and the swagger-stick of the officer of rank colonel or above, stood glaring at them. Age, Joe estimated, even as he came to attention, somewhere in the late twenties, and upper in caste. Born to command, his voice holding that arrogant, contemptuous expression once common to the patricians of Rome, the Prussian Junkers, the British ruling class of the nineteenth century. Joe knew the expression well. How well he knew it! On more than one occasion he had dreamt of it. Joe said, Yes, sir. What in Zen goes on here? Are you lads overtranked? No, sir. Joe's veteran opponent grumbled, his eyes on the ground, a schoolboy before the principal. Joe said evenly, A private disagreement, sir. Disagreement? the upper snorted. His eyes went to the three fallen combatants, who were in various stages of reviving. I'd hate to see you lads in a real scrap. That brought a response from the non-combatants in the recruiting line. The bon mot wasn't that good, but caste has its privileges, and the laughter was just short of uproarious. Which seemed to placate the kilted officer. He tapped his swagger-stick against the side of his leg, while he ran his eyes up and down Joe Mauser and the others, as though memorizing them for future reference. "'All right,' he said. "'Get back into line, and you troublemakers quiet down. We are processing as quickly as we can.' And at that point he added insult to injury with an almost word-for-word -word repetition of what Joe had said a few moments earlier. You'll get all the fighting you want from Hovercraft, if you can wait until then." The four original participants of the rumpus resumed their places in various stages of sheepishness. The little fellow, nursing an obviously aching jaw, made a point of taking up his original position even while darting a look of thanks to Joe Mauser, who still stood where he had when the fight was interrupted. The upper looked at Joe. Well, lad, are you interested in signing up with vacuum-tube transport or not?" "'Yes, sir,' Joe said evenly. Then, "'Joe Mauser, sir, Category Military, Rank Captain.' "'Indeed.' 
The officer looked him up and down all over again, his nostrils high. A middle, I assume, and brawling with recruits. He held a long silence. Very well, come with me. He turned and marched off. Joe inwardly shrugged. This was a fine start for his pitch, a fine start. He had half a mind to give it all up, here and now, and head on up to Catskill to enlist with Continental Hovercraft. His big scheme would wait for another day. Nevertheless, he fell in behind the aristocrat and followed him to the offices which had been his original destination. Two rank privates, with forty-five-seventy Springfields, and wearing the hair kilts in such wise as to indicate permanent status in vacuum-tube transport, came to the salute as they approached. The upper preceding Joe Mauser flicked his swagger-stick in an easy nonchalance. Joe felt envious amusement. How long did it take to learn how to answer a salute with that degree of arrogant ease? There were desks in here and typers humming, as vacuum-tube transport office workers, mobilized for this special service, processed volunteers for the company forces. Harried non-coms and junior-grade officers buzzed everywhere, failing miserably to bring order to the chaos. To the right was a door with a medical cross newly painted on it. When it occasionally popped open to admit or emit a recruit, White-robed doctors, male nurses, and half-nude men could be glimpsed beyond. Joe followed the other through the press and to an inner office at which door he didn't bother to knock. He pushed his way through, waved in greeting with his swagger-stick to the single occupant who looked up from the paper and tape-strewn desk at which he sat. Joe Mauser had seen the face before on telly, though never so tired as this, and never with the element of defeat to be read in the expression. Bullet-headed, barrel-figured, Baron Malcolm Hare of vacuum-tube transport. Category transportation. Mid-upper and strong candidate for upper-upper upon retirement. However, there would be few who expected retirement in the immediate future. Hardly. Malcolm Hare found too obvious a lusty enjoyment in the competition between vacuum-tube transport and its stronger rivals. Joe came to attention, bore the sharp scrutiny of his chosen commander-to-be. The older man's eyes went to the kilted upper officer who had brought Joe along. "'What is it, Bolt?' The other gestured with his stick at Joe. "'Claims to be rank captain.' looking for a commission with us, Dad. I would know why." The last sentence was added lazily. The older hare shot an irritated glance at his son. "'Possibly for the same reason mercenaries usually enlist for a fricas bolt.' His eyes came back to Joe. Joe Mauser, still at attention, even though in mufti, opened his mouth to give his name, category and rank, but the older man waved a hand negatively. Captain Mauser, isn't it? I caught the fracas between carbonaceous fuel and United Miners, down on the Panhandle Reservation. Seems to me I've spotted you once or twice before, too." "'Yes, sir,' Joe said. This was some improvement in the way things were going. The older hare was scowling at him. "'Confound it! What are you doing with no more rank than Captain? On the face of it, 
you're an old hand, a highly experienced veteran. An old pro we call ourselves, Joe said to himself. Old pros we call ourselves among ourselves. Aloud, he said, I was born a mid-lower, sir. There was understanding in the old man's face, but Balt Hare said loftily, What's that got to do with it? Promotion is quick and based on merit in category military. At a certain point, if you are good combat officer material, you speak your mind no matter the rank of the man you are addressing. On this occasion, Joe Mauser needed few words. He let his eyes go up and down Balt Hare's immaculate uniform, taking in the swagger stick of the rank colonel or above. Joe said evenly, Yes, sir. Balt Hare flushed quick temper. What do you mean by— His father was chuckling. You have spirit, Captain. I need spirit now. You are quite correct. My son, though a capable officer, I assure you, has probably not participated in a fraction of the fracases you have to your credit. However, there is something to be said for the training available to we uppers in the academies. For instance, Captain, have you ever commanded a body of lads larger than, well, a company? Joe said flatly, In the Douglas Boeing versus Lockheed Cessna fracas, we took a high loss of officers when the Douglas Boeing outfit rang in some fast-firing French mitrailleuse we didn't know they had. As my superiors took casualties, I was field-promoted to acting battalion commander, to acting regimental commander, to acting brigadier. For three days I held the rank of acting commander of brigade. We won." Balt Hare snapped his fingers. "'I remember that. Read quite a paper on it.' He eyed Joe Mauser almost respectfully. Stonewall Cogswell got the credit for the victory and received his marshal's baton as a result. He was one of the few other officers that survived, Joe said dryly. But then, you mean you got no promotion at all? Joe said, I was upped to low middle from high lower, sir. At my age, at the time, quite a promotion. Baron Hare was remembering, too. That was the fracas that brought on the howl from the Soves. They claimed those mitrailleuses were post-1900 and violated the Universal Disarmament Pact. Yes, I recall that. Douglas Boeing was able to prove that the weapon was used by the French as far back as the Franco-Prussian War. He eyed Joe with new interest now. Sit down, Captain. You too, Bolt. Do you realize that Captain Mauser is the only recruit of officer rank we've had today? Yes, the younger Hare said dryly. However, it's too late to call the fracas off now. Hovercraft wouldn't stand for it, and the category military department would back them. Our only alternative is unconditional surrender, and you know what that means. It means our family would probably be forced from control of the firm the older man growled. But nobody has suggested surrender on any terms. Nobody thus far." He glared at his officer's son, who took it with an easy shrug and swung a leg over the edge of his father's desk in the way of a seat. Joe Mauser found a chair and lowered himself into it. Evidently, the foppish bald hair had no illusions about the spot his father had got the family corporation into. 
and the younger man was right, of course. But the Baron wasn't blind to reality any more than he was a coward. He dismissed Balt Hare's defeatism from his mind and came back to Joe Mauser. "'As I say, you're the only officer recruit today. Why?' Joe said evenly, "'I wouldn't know, sir. Perhaps freelance category military men are occupied elsewhere. There's always a shortage of trained officers.' Baron Hare was waggling a finger negatively. "'That's not what I mean, Captain. You're an old hand. This is your category, and you must know it well. Then why are you signing up with vacuum-tube transport, rather than hovercraft?' Joe Mauser looked at him for a moment without speaking. "'Come, come, Captain. I'm an old hand, too, in my category, and not a fool.' I realize there is scarcely a soul in the West world that expects anything but disaster for my colors. Pay rates have been widely posted. I can offer only five common shares of vacuum tube for a rank captain, win or lose. Hovercraft is doubling that, and can pick and choose among the best officers in the hemisphere." Joe said softly, "'I have all the shares I need.' Baltair had been looking back and forth between his father and the newcomer, and becoming obviously more puzzled. He put in, "'Well, what in Zen motivates you if it isn't the stock we offer?' Joe glanced at the younger Hare to acknowledge the question, but he spoke to the Baron. "'Sir, like you said, you're no fool. However, you've been sucked in this time. When you took on hovercraft, you were thinking in terms of a regional dispute. You wanted to run one of your vacuum-tube deals up to Fairbanks from Edmonton. You were expecting a minor fracas, involving possibly five thousand men. You never expected hovercraft to parlay it up, through their connections in the category military department, to a divisional magnitude fracas, which you simply aren't large enough to afford. But hovercraft was getting sick of your corporation. You've been nicking away at them too long. So they decided to do you in. They've hired Marshal Cogswell and the best combat officers in North America, and they're hiring the most competent veterans they can find. Every fracas buff who watches telly figures you've had it. They've been watching you come up the aggressive way, the hard way, for a long time, but now they're all going to be sitting on the edges of their sofas waiting for you to get it. Baron Hare's heavy face had hardened as Joe Mauser went on relentlessly. He growled, "'Is this what everyone thinks?' "'Yes, everyone intelligent enough to have an opinion.' Joe made a motion of his head to the outer offices, where the recruiting was proceeding. "'Those men out there are rejects from Catskill, where old Baron Zwerdling is recruiting. Either that, or they're inexperienced, low-lowers, too stupid to realize they're sticking their necks out. Not one man in ten is a veteran, and when things began to pickle, you want veterans." Baron Malcolm Hare sat back in his chair and stared coldly at Captain Joe Mauser. He said, "'At first I was moderately surprised that an old-time mercenary like yourself should choose my uniform rather than Zwerdling's. Now I am increasingly mystified about motivation. So, all over again, I ask you, Captain, why are you requesting a commission in my forces which you seem convinced will meet disaster?" 
Joe wet his lips carefully. I think I know a way you can win. 2. His permanent military rank the Hares had no way to alter, but they were short enough of competent officers that they gave him an acting rating and pay scale of major and command of a squadron of cavalry. Joe Mauser wasn't interested in a cavalry command this fracas, but he said nothing. Immediately he had to size up the situation. It wasn't time as yet to reveal the big scheme, and meanwhile they could use him to whip the rank privates into shape. He left the offices of Baron Hare to go through the red tape involved in being signed up on a temporary basis in the vacuum-tube transport forces and re-entered the confusion of the outer offices, where the lowers were being processed and given medicals. He re-entered in time to run into a tele-team which was doing a live broadcast. Joe Mauser remembered the news reporter who headed the team. He'd run into him two or three times in fracases. As a matter of fact, although Joe held the standard military category prejudices against Telly, he had a basic respect for this particular newsman. On the occasions he'd seen him before, the fellow was hot in the midst of the action, even when things were in the dill. He took as many chances as did the average combatant, and you can't ask for more than that. The other knew him, too, of course. It was part of his job to be able to spot the celebrities and near-celebrities. He zeroed in on Joe now, making flicks of his hand to direct the cameras. Joe, of course, was fully aware of the value of Telly, and was glad to cooperate. "'Captain! Captain Mauser, isn't it? Joe Mauser, who held out for four days in the swamps of Louisiana with a single company, while his ranking officers reformed behind him!' That was one way of putting it, but both Joe and the newscaster who had covered the debacle knew the reality of the situation. When the front had collapsed, his commanders, of upper caste of course, had hauled out, leaving him to fight a delaying action while they mended their fences with the enemy, coming to the best terms possible. Yes, that had been the United Oil versus Allied Petroleum fracas and Joe had emerged with little in either glory or pelf. The average fracas fan wasn't on an intellectual level to appreciate anything other than victory. The good guys win, the bad guys lose. That's obvious, isn't it? Not one out of ten tele-followers of the fracases was interested in a well-conducted retreat or holding action. They wanted blood, lots of it, and they identified with the winning side. Joe Mauser wasn't particularly bitter about this aspect. It was part of his way of life. In fact, his pet peeve was the real buff, the type, man or woman, who could remember every fracas you'd ever been in, every time you'd copped one, and how long you'd been in the hospital. Fans who could remember, even better than you could, every time the situation had pickled on you and you'd had to fight your way out as best as you could. They'd tell you about it, their eyes gleaming, sometimes a slightest trickle of spittle at the sides of their mouths. They usually wanted an autograph or a souvenir such as a uniform button. Now, Joe said to the telly reporter, That's right, Captain Mauser, acting major in this fracas. Ah, uh, Freddy, Freddy Soligan, you remember me, Captain? Of course I do, Freddy. 
we've been in the dill side by side, more than once, and even when I was too scared to use my sidearm, you'd be scanning away with your camera. Ha-ha, listen to the captain, folks. I hope my boss is tuned in. But seriously, Captain Mauser, what do you think the chances of vacuum-tube transport are in this fracas? Joe looked into the camera lens earnestly. The best, of course, or I wouldn't have signed up with barren hair, Freddy. Justice triumphs, and anybody who is familiar with the issues in this fracas knows that barren hair is on the side of true right. Freddy said, holding any sarcasm he must have felt, What would you say the issues were, Captain? The basic North American free enterprise right to compete. Hovercraft has held a near monopoly in transport to Fairbanks. Vacuum-tube transport wishes to lower costs and bring the consumers of Fairbanks better service through running a vacuum-tube to that area. What could be more in the traditions of the West World? Continental Hovercraft stands in the way, and it is they who have demanded of the Category Military Department a trial by arms. On the face of it, justice is on the side of barren hair. Freddy Soligan said into the camera, well, all you good people of the telly world, that's an able summation the captain has made. But it certainly doesn't jibe with the words of Baron Zwerdling we heard this morning, does it? However, justice triumphs, and we'll see what the field of combat will have to offer. Thank you, thank you very much, Captain Mauser. All of us, all of us tuned in today, hope that you, personally, will run into no dill in this fracas. Thanks, Freddy. Thanks, all. Joe said into the camera, before turning away. He wasn't particularly keen about this part of the job, but you couldn't underrate the importance of pleasing the buffs. In the long run, it was your career, your chances for promotion both in military rank and ultimately in caste. It was the way the fans took you up, boosted you, idolized you, worshipped you if you really made it. He, Joe Mauser, was only a minor celebrity. He appreciated every chance he had to be interviewed by such a popular reporter as Freddy Soligan. Even as he turned, he spotted the four men with whom he'd had his spat earlier. The little fellow was still to the fore. Evidently, the others had decided the one place extra that he represented wasn't worth the trouble he'd put in their way defending it. On an impulse, he stepped up to the small man who began a grin of recognition, a grin that transformed his feisty face. A revelation of inner warmth beyond average in a world which had lost much of its human warmth. Joe said, Like a job, soldier? Name's Max. Max Mains. Sure I want a job. That's why I'm in this everlasting line. Joe said, First fracas for you, isn't it? Yeah but I had basic training in school. What do you weigh, Max? Max's face soured. About one-twenty. Did you check out on semaphore at school? Well, sure. I'm category food, subdivision cooking, branch chef. But like I said, I took basic military training, like most everybody else. I'm Captain Joe Mauser. How'd you like to be my Batman? Max screwed up his already not overly handsome face. Gee, I don't know. I kind of joined up to see some action. Get into the dill, you know what I mean. 
Joe said dryly. See here, Maines, you'll probably find more pickled situation next to me than you'll want, and you'll come out alive. The recruiting sergeant looked up from the desk. It was Max Maines's turn to be processed. The sergeant said, Lad, take a good opportunity when it drops in your lap. The captain is one of the best in the field. You'll learn more, get better chances for promotion if you stick with him. Joe couldn't remember ever having run into the sergeant before, but he said, Thanks, sergeant. The other said, evidently realizing Joe didn't recognize him, We were together in the Chihuahua Reservation, on the jurisdictional fracas between the United Miners and the Teamsters, sir. It had been almost fifteen years ago. About all that Joe Mauser remembered of that fracas was the abnormal number of casualties they'd taken. His sight had lost, but from this distance in time Joe couldn't even remember what force he'd been with. But now he said, "'That's right. I thought I recognized you, sergeant.' "'It was my first fracas, sir.' The sergeant went businesslike. "'If you want I should hustle this lad through, captain.' Please do, sergeant," Joe added to Max. I'm not sure where my billet will be. When you're through all this, locate the officer's mess and wait there for me. Well, okay," Max said doubtfully, still scowling but evidently a servant of an officer, if he wanted to be or not. Sir," the sergeant added ominously, if you've had basic, you know enough how to address an officer. Well, yes, sir. Max said hurriedly. Joe began to turn away, but then spotted the man immediately behind Max Maines. He was one of the three with whom Joe had tangled earlier, the one who'd obviously had previous combat experience. He pointed the man out to the sergeant. You'd better give this lad at least temporary rank of corporal. He's a veteran, and we're short of veterans. The sergeant said, Yes, sir, we sure are. Joe's former foe looked properly thankful. Joe Mauser finished off his own red tape and headed for the street to locate a military tailor who could do him up a set of hair kilts and fill his other dress requirements. As he went, he wondered vaguely just how many different uniforms he had worn in his time. In a career as long as his own, from time to time you took semi-permanent positions in bodyguards, company police, or possibly the permanent combat troops of this corporation or that. But largely, if you were ambitious, you signed up for the fracases, and that meant into a uniform and out of it again in as short a period as a couple of weeks. At the door he tried to move aside, but was too slow for the quick-moving young woman who'd caromed off him. He caught her arm to prevent her from stumbling. She looked at him with less than thanks. Joe took blame for the collision. Sorry, he said. I'm afraid I didn't see you, miss. Obviously, she said coldly. Her eyes went up and down him, and for a moment he wondered where he had seen her before. Somewhere, he was sure. She was dressed as they dress who have never considered cost, and she had an elusive beauty which would have been even the more hadn't her face projected quite such a serious outlook. Her features were more delicate than those to which he was usually attracted. Her lips were less full, but still he was reminded of the classic ideal of the British Romantic period, the women sung of by Byron and Keats, Shelley and Moore. 
she said, "'Is there any particular reason why you should be staring at me, Mr.' "'Captain Mauser,' Joe said hurriedly. "'I'm afraid I've been rude, Miss. Well, I thought I recognized you.' She took in his civilian dress, typed it automatically, and came to an erroneous conclusion. She said, "'Captain, you mean that, with everyone else I know drawing down ranks from lieutenant-colonel to brigadier-general, you can't make anything better than captain?' Joe winced. He said carefully, "'I came up from the ranks, miss. Captain is quite an achievement, believe me.' "'Up from the ranks?' She took in his clothes again. "'You mean you're a middle? You neither talk nor look like a middle, captain?' She used the caste rating as though it was not quite a derogatory term. Not that she meant to be deliberately insulting, Joe knew wearily. How well he knew! It was simply born in her. As once a well-educated aristocracy had, not necessarily unkindly, named their status inferiors niggers, or other aristocrats in another area of the country had named theirs greasers. Yes, how well he knew! He said very evenly, Mid-middle now, miss. However, I was born in the lower castes." An eyebrow went up. "'Zen! You must have put in many an hour studying. You talk like an upper, Captain.' She dropped all interest in him and turned to resume her journey. "'Just a moment,' Joe said. "'You can't go in there, miss.' Her eyebrows went up again. "'The name is Hare,' she said. "'Why can't I go in there, Captain?' Now it came to him why he had thought he recognized her. She had basic features similar to those of that overbred poppycock, Balt Hare. "'Sorry,' Joe said. "'I suppose under the circumstances you can. I was about to tell you that they're recruiting with lads running around half-clothed. Medical inspections, that sort of thing.' She made a noise through her nose and said over her shoulder, even as she sailed on, "'Besides being a hare, I'm an M.D., Captain. At the ludicrous sight of a man shuffling about in his shorts, I seldom blush." She was gone. Joe Mauser looked after her. "'I'll bet you don't,' he muttered. Had she waited a few minutes, he could have explained his upper accent and his unlikely education. When you'd copped one, you had plenty of opportunity in hospital beds to read, to study, to contemplate and to fester away in your own schemes of rebellion against fate. And Joe had copped many in his time. 3. By the time Joe Mauser called it a day and retired to his quarters, he was exhausted to the point where his basic dissatisfaction with the trade he followed was heavily upon him. He had met his immediate senior officers, largely dilettante uppers with precious little field experience, and was unimpressed. And he'd met his own junior officers, and was shocked. By the looks of things at this stage, Captain Mauser's squadron would be going into this fracas both undermanned, with rank privates, and with junior officers composed largely of temporarily promoted noncoms. If this was typical of Baron Hare's total force, then Balt Hare had been correct. Unconditional surrender was to be considered no matter how disastrous to Hare family fortunes. 
Joe had been unable to take immediate delivery of one kilted uniform. Now, inside his quarters, he began stripping out of his jacket. Somewhat to his surprise, the small man he had selected earlier in the day to be his batman entered from an inner room, also resplendent in the hair uniform, and obviously happily so. He helped his superior out of the jacket with an ease that held no subservience, but at the same time was correctly respectful. You'd have thought him a batman specially trained. Joe grunted, "'Max, isn't it? I'd forgotten about you. Glad you found our billet all right.' Max said, "'Yes, sir. Would the captain like a drink? I picked up a bottle of Applejack. Applejack's the drink around here, sir. Makes a top-notch highball with ginger ale and a twist of lemon.' Joe Mauser looked at him. Evidently, his tapping this man for orderly had been sheer fortune. Well, Joe Mauser could use some good luck on this job. He hoped it didn't end with selecting a batman. Joe said, "'An Applejack highball sounds wonderful, Max. Got ice?' "'Of course, sir.' Max left the small room. Joe Mauser and his officers were billeted in what had once been a motel on the old road between Kingston and Woodstock. There was a shower and a tiny kitchenette in each cottage. That was one advantage in a fracas held in an area where there were plenty of facilities. Such military reservations as that of the Little Bighorn in Montana, and particularly some of those in the Southwest and Mexico, were another thing. Joe lowered himself into the room's easy chair and bent down to untie his laces. He kicked his shoes off. He could use that drink. He began wondering all over again if his scheme for winning this vacuum-tube transport versus continental hovercraft fracas would come off. The more he saw of Baron Hare's inadequate forces, the more he wondered. He hadn't expected vacuum-tube to be in this bad a shape. Baron Hare had been riding high for so long that one would have thought his reputation for victory would have lured many a veteran to his colors. Evidently, they hadn't bitten. The word was out all right. Max Maines returned with the drink. Joe said, "'You had one yourself?' "'No, sir.' Joe said, "'Well, Zen, go get yourself one and come on back and sit down. Let's get acquainted.' "'Well, yes, sir.' Max disappeared back into the kitchenette to return almost immediately. The little man slid into a chair, drink awkwardly in hand. His superior sized him up all over again. Not much more than a kid, really. Surprisingly aggressive for a lower, who must have been raised from childhood in a trank-bemused, telly-entertained household. The fact that he'd broken away from that environment at all was to his credit, it was considerably easier to conform. But then it is always easier to conform, to run with the herd, as Joe well knew. His own break hadn't been an easy one. "'Relax,' he said now. Max said, "'Well, this is my first day.' "'I know, and you've been seeing telly shows all your life showing how an orderly conducts himself in the presence of his superior.' Joe took another pull and yawned. "'Well, forget about it. With any man who goes into a fracas with me, I like to be on close terms. When things pickle, I want him to be on my side.' not nursing some peeve brought on by his officer, trying to give him an inferiority complex. 
The little man was eyeing him in surprise. Joe finished his highball and came to his feet to get another one. He said, "'On two occasions I've had an orderly save my life. I'm not taking any chances, but that there might be a third opportunity.' "'Well, yes, sir. Does the captain want me to get him? I'll get it,' Joe said. When he returned to his chair, he said, "'Why did you join up with Baron Hare, Max?' The other shrugged it off. "'The usual. The excitement. The idea of all those fans watching me on telly. The share of common stock I'll get. And, you'll never know, maybe a promotion and cast. I wouldn't mind making up a lower.' Joe said sourly, "'On fracas, and you'll be over that desire to have the buffs watching you on telly, while they sit around in their front room sucking on tranks.' and you'll probably be over the desire for the excitement, too. Of course, the share of stock is another thing." "'You ought just count down, Captain,' Max said, an almost surly overtone in his voice. "'You don't know what it's like being born with no more common stock shares than a mid-lower.' Joe held his peace, sipping at his drink, taking this one more slowly. He let his eyebrows rise to encourage the other to go on. Max said doggedly, "'Sure, they call it people's capitalism, when everybody gets issued enough shares to ensure him a basic living, all the way from the cradle to the grave, like they say. But let me tell you, you're middle, and you don't realize how basic the basic living of a lower can be.' Joe yawned. If he hadn't been so tired, there would have been more amusement in the situation. Max was still dogged. Unless you can add to those shares of stock, it's pretty drab, Captain. You wouldn't know." Joe said, "'Why don't you work? A lower can always add to his stock by working.' Max stirred in indignity. "'Work? Listen, sir, that's just one more field that's been automated right out of existence. Category food preparation, subdivision cooking, branch chef. Cooking isn't left in the hands of slobs who might drop a cake of soap into the soup. It's done automatic. And the only changes made in cooking are by real top experts, almost scientist-like. And most of them are uppers, mind you." Joe Mauser sighed inwardly. So his finding Batman wasn't going to be as wonderful as all that after all. The man might have been born into the food preparation category from a long line of chefs, but evidently he knew precious little about his field. Joe might have suspected. He himself had been born into clothing category, subdivision shoes, branch repair, cobbler, a meaningless trade since shoes were no longer repaired but discarded upon showing signs of wear. In an economy of complete abundance there is little reason for repair of basic commodities. It was high time the government investigated category assignment and reshuffled and reassigned half the nation's population. But then, of course, was the question of what to do with the technologically unemployed. Max was saying, "'The only way I could figure on a promotion to a higher caste, or the only way to earn stock shares, was by crossing categories. And you know what that means. Either category military, or category religion, and I sure as Zen don't know nothing about religion." Joe said mildly, "'Theoretically, 
You can cross categories into any field you want, Max." Max snorted. Theoretically is right, sir. You ever heard about anybody born a lower, or even a middle like yourself, cross categories to, say, upper category like banking? Joe chuckled. He liked this peppery little fellow. If Max worked out as well as Joe thought he might, there was a possibility of taking him along to the next fracas. Max was saying, I'm not saying anything against the old-time way of doing things, or talking against the government, but I'll tell you, Captain, every year goes by, it gets harder and harder for a man to raise his caste, or to earn some additional stock shares. The Applejack had worked enough on Joe for him to rise against one of his pet peeves. He said, That term, the old-time way, is strictly tele-talk, Max. We don't do things the old-time way. No nation in history ever has, with the possible exception of Egypt. Socioeconomics are in a continual flux, and here in this country we no more do things in the way they did fifty years ago than fifty years ago they did them the way the American revolutionists outlined back in the eighteenth century." Max was staring at him. "'I don't get that, sir,' Joe said impatiently. Max. The politico-economic system we have today is an outgrowth of what went earlier. The welfare state, the freezing of the status quo, the frigid fracas between the West world and the Sov world, industrial automation until useful employment is all but needless, all these things were to be found in embryo more than fifty years ago. Well, maybe the captain's right, but you gotta admit, sir, that mostly we do things the old way. We still got the Constitution and the two-party system, and—" Joe was wearying of the conversation now. You seldom ran into anyone, even in middle caste, the traditionally professional class, interested enough in such subjects to be worth arguing with. He said, "'The Constitution, Max, has got to the point of the Bible. Interpret it the way you wish, and you can find anything. If not, you can always make a new amendment. So far as the two-party system is concerned, what effect does it have when there are no differences between the two parties? That phase of pseudo-democracy was beginning as far back as the 1930s, when they began passing state laws hindering the emerging of new political parties. By the time they were insured against a third party working its way through the maze of election laws, the two parties had become so similar that elections became almost as big a farce as over in the Sov world. A farce? Max ejaculated indignantly, forgetting his servant status. That means not so good, doesn't it? Far as I'm concerned, election day is tops. The one day a lower is just as good as an upper. The one day how many shares you got makes no difference. Everybody has everything. Sure, 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 Joe sighed, the modern equivalent of the Roman bacchanalia, election day in the West world when no one, for just that one day, is freer than anyone else. Well, what's wrong with that? The other was all but belligerent. That's the trouble with you middles and uppers. You don't know how it is to be a lower, and, Joe snapped suddenly, I was born a mid-lower myself, Max. Don't give me that nonsense. Max gaped at him, utterly unbelieving. Joe's irritation fell away. 
He held out his glass. Get us a couple of more drinks, Max, and I'll tell you a story. By the time the fresh drink came, Joe Mauser was sorry he'd made the offer. He thought back. He hadn't told anyone the Joe Mauser story in many a year. And, as he recalled, the last time had been when he was well into his cups, on an election day at that, and his listener had been a low upper, a hereditary aristocrat, one of the one percent of the upper strata of the nation. Zen! How the man had laughed! He'd roared his amusement till the tears ran. However, Joe said, Max, I was born in the same caste you were. Average father, mother, sisters and brothers. They subsisted on the basic income guaranteed from birth, sat and watched telly for an unbelievable number of hours each day, took trank to keep themselves happy, and thought I was crazy because I didn't. Dad was a sort of man who'd take his belt off to a child of his who questioned such school-taught slogans as, What was good enough for Daddy is good enough for me. They were all fracas fans, of course. As far back as I can remember, the pictures there of them gathered around the telly, screaming excitement. Joe Mauser sneered, uncharacteristically. "'You don't sound much like you're in favor of your trade, Captain,' Max said. Joe came to his feet, putting down his still half-full glass. "'I'll make this epic story short, Max. As you said, the two actually valid methods of rising above the level in which you were born are in the military and religious categories. Like you, even I couldn't stomach the latter.' Joe Mauser hesitated, then finished it off. "'Max, there have been few societies that man has evolved that didn't allow in some manner for the competent or sly, the intelligent or the opportunist, the brave or the strong, to work his way to the top. I don't know which of these I personally fit into, but I rebel against remaining in the lower categories of a stratified society. Do I make myself clear?" "'Well, no, sir, not exactly,' Joe said flatly. I'm going to fight my way to the top, and nothing is going to stand in the way. Is that clearer?" Yes, sir, Max said, taken aback. End of Part One